0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Stuart Crane. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, recorded at the Fox Club in central London, a particularly noisy Fox Club today. Uh, My guest is Steve Goldback, who's the co-author of Detonate, a forbiddingly entitled book, but riveting reading, uh, which outlines that companies are high-bound by orthodoxy. Yes. What was the genesis of the book, Steve?
1: So, Jeff and I, Jeff Tuff, my co-author, and I had an observation that, if you talk to executives today, you heard all about their fears of disruption, and disruption was the number one issue that they wanted to deal with. But we didn't see a lot of evidence of actions of doing things differently. And we discovered that there was a very human element to that, to that, which was, people were willing individuals within the organization were unwilling to challenge long standing orthodoxies within their organizations and these were the playbooks that had been built up over time both formal and informal playbooks and when you start to scratch the surface of some of those playbooks you know a lot of them that had proverbially been named best practices over the time and you look at them you say that doesn't hold up, you know, that doesn't hold up to shining a light on them. That doesn't tend to hold water today. And so the reason for detonators was because we felt that actually mitigating disruption, um, mitigating a world where technology is advancing really quickly required really thinking differently and acting differently and blowing some stuff up. And so that was, that was the genesis of it. But we found that this was not a technological solve. this was about creating different human behaviors and understanding the the drivers of human behavior mm. within an organization. So I suppose best practice is always historical. Best practice is always historical and mathematically, if everybody does best practice by definition, everyone will be average. and it was amazing to us how many how many uh, executives felt that if you simply applied best practices, that would get you great results and the, the the math just for us didn't clear. And let, let me be clear about something. There's nothing wrong with applying best practices to parts of your organization where that don't contribute to the differentiation with your customers. So for example, there's no reason why you shouldn't apply best practices in executing your payroll, right? If yeah. there's a great practice, then you should do that. You should do it the most efficiently and best practices are great for that. But the problem is, is that rotely applying best practices across your organization are a path to mediocrity at best. Mm.
0: And we see lots of evidence of that. But don't human beings crave mediocrity in a way? I mean organizations are set up to be medi- mediocre.
1: I don't think it's mediocrity they crave, it's safety. It's feeling it's feeling well, the like two, the, the two are the same thing. The, though, aren't they they, they <laughs> could be they could be. It's feeling like I'm gonna be perceived as smart by my boss. And, you know, that, that goes back to the the orthodoxies. Where do they come from? If you think about the first day, your first day at your job, your boss probably said something to you like, you know, welcome to the organization, Stuart. If you, if you do the things that I did when I was in your shoes, you too can be successful. So when it comes to you making a call later on, you're going to more likely than not do the thing that would please your boss. And that's going to be doing something that is more similar than not. But the problem is, is that when... We, question, we, we don't question whether or not that was the right thing to do, even if it doesn't work. In fact, we observe that when people do things that don't work, they question, did we execute it right, rather than was it the right thing to do? And that, that you get this stronger adherence to the playbook is fine, um, even in the face of lots of evidence that it might not be.
0: You talk about bringing a beginner's mind to yeah. things. What, what, what do you mean by that?
1: So if you believe, as, as many executives do today, that the world is moving at a faster pace than ever before because of technological advances, which is increasing the different possibilities for business models and what you can do to solve customer problems, then if, you know, there's a great quote from Zen Buddhism, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, and in the expert's mind, there are few. So we think that if if you've all of a sudden got this wealth of possibilities, but because of your expertise, you've got these blinders on, you've got this the way you frame a market, the way you frame a, an industry, even the word industry is a bit of a dirty word to me. Because industry connotes that there are these are the companies that you compete with and everybody else doesn't compete and doesn't matter. And even that simple framing of not seeing doesn't allow you to see other possibilities. So we love the idea of beginner's mind, and we certainly didn't Coin the phrase, but we love the application of it because it just says you need to infuse your organization with thinking from, you know, the, the blissfulness of ignorance, and that'll help you discover things that you wouldn't have otherwise discovered.
0: And you also talk about embracing impermanence. I mean, it seems to me that organizations, corporations are set up as, as per, there's a sense of permanence and that's why they create them, that's why they have big atriums and uh, corporate art on the walls. They want to create a sense of permanence. Historically, but now you talk about being uh, comfortable with impermanence. Exactly, and and you know, if you
1: think about the f- the four principles in the book, you can kind of divide them into thinking differently and acting differently, which is something we don't do in the book. We frankly, we thought of that afterwards. So, some we're not going to take a page out of our own book and not just say we're talking a book, about a what's a learning in the book. Experience. Exactly. Um, well, the the thinking differently would be applying, you know, that beginner's mind, and then focusing on behavior, and then embracing impermanence is one example of of acting differently along with minimal viable moves and the reason embracing impermanence is so important is because again it goes back to that principle if the world is changing around you the world is changing around you then what you do today may work pretty well for a period of time but if you erect it in such a way that it's impossible to change when the world eventually changes again, then you'll be wedded to it. I mean, I think the example we do talk about in the book is how the world of marketing and advertising was relatively slow when you look back and say it was, it was slow to adopt digital forms of communication. Why? Because it was people's jobs to buy television ads. And if you make it someone's job, it's a sense of permanence and they're going to defend that job till the death. And so what we have to do is make it easy to swap something else out when there's, you know, prima facie evidence that this doesn't apply anymore, this doesn't work. But since organizations love that sense of comfort and, and permanence, um, that's a new muscle to build.
0: And the fourth principle you talk about is to, to build minimally viable moves to, to test and learn. And in that, you're really critical of the what you call the church of failure. Yes. So. In, in that failure has been set up as a... Uh, inevitable and as a good thing.
1: Yes, and and we think failure is celebrating failure is what we, what we want, uh, what we want to get rid of. And and I want to be clear about the definition that we're applying here. We are big fans of learning. We are huge fans of learning. But when people celebrate failure, it's often because they've wasted so much money or failed so spectacularly that. They can do nothing more than celebrate it to make them feel better um, as human beings and we'd say well that's stupid let's design a better test so that failure doesn't hurt so much um, but learning feels good so this the story we talk about in the in the in the book around minimal viable moves which is of course an extension from the world of product design for yeah. minimal viable products we think it can be applied to anything we we talk about the since you're since you've got a journalistic background and I spent time at Forbes we talked about the folly of when Forbes tried to cap, you know, capture the market on the Qcat back in back in the at the turn of the century and it was not a bad move to figure out whether or not you could create value for your advertisers by by having a little device that people could scan a barcode and take them to a web page for more information. Unfortunately, we learned the hard way after buying a million Qcats and sending them to all of our subscribers that turns out that people didn't always read their Forbes magazine tethered to their desk. And the QCAT was, of course, a wired device. You could have got, the learning was great. We learned a bit more about how our readers engage with the magazine and how how they thought about it and whether they would be willing to go to a website for more information. But we could have got that same learning by sending it to 30 people instead of Okay. To a million people, and so this idea of celebrating failure—I think for me, it's just design a better test that you don't have to, you know, uh, worry about the egg on your face when it doesn't
0: work out. If so you're CSO of Deloitte in the, in the in the U.S., uh, how do you put these ideas into practice?
1: I mean, the the biggest thing that I want to—I'm trying to drive at Deloitte is, in fact, this idea of piloting. Deloitte itself is a large organization, and in you know, like any large organization, we've got our we've got our orthodoxies that we need to we need to blow up and for me the the thing that i'm trying to do when it comes to making change at deloitte is get us to really embrace Doing things at a small scale, quickly and rapidly, and and whatever we whenever we're trying a change, we'd say let's just find a place to try that out in the organization. The wonderful part about Deloitte is because we are, you know, a partner-driven organization. We can almost always find a set of partners who will be willing to try something out and run an experiment. And I think that that's going to be the way that organizations derive, you know, one of the ways that they can derive advantage in the future is to become a great learning organization. You've got to be willing to do experiments, and then figure out a way to quickly learn from those ex- from those experiments but you, that's the, the one thing i would i'm trying to drive as much at, at Deloitte
0: and in the same way that turkeys are unlikely to vote for christmas it seems to me that middle managers are unlikely to 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 really change and challenge corporate orthodoxies so that it follows then that the lead to change orthodoxies must come from younger managers well it,
1: i i that's a it's a I think it, it comes from a variety of different places. I think the only way you get real lasting change in an organization has to be from the top, because for me the biggest driver of how people behave is the questions that they get from their leaders, and so in, inevitably I think that people want to uh, want to please their bosses. They're going to react to the, the they're going to react to what they're asked to do, and they're going to do it. And so I think that that's the you know the change has got to come from the top i would agree with the point that young people come in with all kinds of ideas and what it would be incumbent upon leaders to do is figure out a way to harness those ideas because they come in with that beginner's mind they come in without the experiments and what do we quickly do we force them to fit into boxes we force them to follow orthodoxy and we kill that and so one of the things that our uh chief executive in the U.S. Kathy Engelbert did, which I thought was a brilliant move, is she started a junior executive team. So it was a team made up of people who had been at Deloitte for less than, you know, three years in their career. And it was a group of, group of you know, young folks who were brazen to come and tell our executive team and and, and Kathy some of their ideas. And I, I thought that was a really great move to set up sort of a parallel organization to get the best to get the best thinking from uh some of the folks who haven't been don't have the burden of expertise.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting what you talk about leadership being a matter of questions mm-hmm. rather than answers. I mean, it's historically leadership has been about answers. Um you quote uh, Tom Watson senior at IBM in the book when he was leading ibm and when his son led ibm mm-hmm. it was a question of the leaders providing answers but now it's the leaders providing the questioning within the organization yeah
1: i th- i think that and if and i think leaders have always asked questions and they've always asked their the people who come to leaders um they're not they, they're they're looking to, they almost always historically have foisted the risk of being wrong on the person doing the presenting. So I come in, I come in with an idea, I'm presenting to you, Stuart, and you say, Steve, how do you, how do I know that that's going to work? Or who else in the world is, who else is doing this already? Um, And if you come in with a really inventive idea, the answer is usually nobody's doing this yet. Um, I can't prove to you it's going to work because it's never been done before. And so you get into this vicious cycle of well, come back and come back and tell me when you can prove it or go tell me analytically. So what do people do? They go back to their office and they put stuff into a spreadsheet with numbers that don't mean anything but they look really rigorous and they start to invent their way to a problem. And really what, what, what we think that leadership ought to do is, is ask questions in such a way that it, puts, it, it takes the risk of being wrong away from the person with the idea it it actually embraces co-learning. So things like instead of asking tell me what the ROI on that is going to be which is you know almost always a question that someone gets start to use the concept of ROI to explore the the things that need to be true in the real world in order for it to be an acceptable decision. So instead of saying you know what's the ROI on that say what behaviors would we need to see from our customers in order for us to be willing to do this? And then how could we design a really, you know, small scale test in order to know whether our customer would do that instead of saying, you know, the moral equivalent of, can you prove that this works? Um, Because when leaders do that, they get the same kinds of behavior that embrace safety, embrace not looking stupid. And that's just not going to be able to, you know, get to get solutions out into the marketplace that are, new delight customers, and leverage all the new possibilities that disruptive technologies offer. Hmm.
0: You, you acknowledge uh, the role of Roger Martin in the book, somebody you, you've worked with in the, in the past. How, how do his, his ideas mesh with the ideas in Detonate, do you think?
1: Well, the, the, I, I, there, Roger's been a great mentor to both me and to Jeff over the years from his time at Monitor. And then he and I, um, along with one of his colleagues, Jennifer Riel, teach our master strategist program at Deloitte. So Roger's had a huge influence um, on the way I think about the world. I'd say the, the one principle that I learned from Roger that sort of is uh, infused throughout the book is this idea that Uh, strategy is good until it's not there's no there's uh, one of the things I'd like to eradicate at Deloitte is this idea of this is a three-year strategy or a five-year strategy Roger loves to use the phrase what would need to be true and when something to to decide whether or not a good that a strategy is good or this particular choice is good and if you can show that all the things that need to be true are are indeed true or you're willing to bet that they are true then that's a good choice Um, I think that that idea applies to the realm of lots of practices that the that executives have today. They might have at one point been good practices. They might have at one point created value. But what would need to be true for those to continue is that you know we're able to you know we able to see the link between those practices and increasing value, increasing customers' behavior. So that's a that's a concept from Roger that uh, that uh, we've taken and applied throughout.
0: So where does the research go next? I mean, what's, what's after detonation? <laughs> there's an aftermath, you're rebuilding. Or... You well, know, I, think, I think part of this is just
1: getting, I think what we'd like to see companies do is just start to make, start to try this. There's a, there's a theory in management that says, if you want to innovate, start some, new, start some new organization at the edge um, and try something different. And we see a lot of value for when you're trying to create a new business in your portfolio of doing that. However, when, when you want to really challenge a culture, um, I think we need to start to see companies experimenting in their core, actually doing things in their core business differently, trying things out, and getting that mentality that actually trying something new is no riskier than doing the same thing over and over again. So, if there's one if there's one consistent practice in the boardroom that I'd love to eradicate, it's the the concept that. The doing the same thing is somehow not risky, right? And and actually, it's super risky if the context around that practice is changing really rapidly. It's really risky to not update your, what you're thinking or update your practices. And so, I want to de-risk people trying something new and get them to and get them to experiment more, um, as we're trying at Deloitte, um, and
0: as hopefully organizations around the world will try. Steve, co-author of Destinate, thank you very much. Thank you, Stuart. That was fun. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.